Today's episode of In the Trenches is brought to you by System 12 Guitar Method. Sign up today at RyanRoxy.com. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, 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 and welcome to another live stream episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Ryan Roxy. Ah, feels good to be back here. It's a little bit warm in here, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, we're here, still here at the North Pole in Sweden, but guess what, folks? It's hot. It's been hot here for a while. So, yeah, believe everything that you read or don't read or don't believe anything. It doesn't matter. It's just fucking warm. That's what I'm saying here. Um, welcome to Into Trenches today. If you the first time watching and uh, you're listening to us on our audio broadcast, thank you very much. We'd love for you to come over to our YouTube official channel, which is Ryan Roxy Official, and hit that subscribe button that's right around there. There it is. Vic, our producer, just put that up. Hit the subscribe button so you can check out all these uh, older episodes of In the Trenches, newer episodes, but the only one you really want to see is the one that we have today. Because, folks, many bands have a bit of an unwritten rule to never mix their music with politics. But today's guest kicked that idea to the curb the second he started bashing out their unapologetic brand of rock and roll. He's gone on to not only rage against the rock and roll establishment and rage against the whatever establishment is out there that's left, but he's also helped establish Jail Guitar Doors, an organization to help those that have been incarcerated by the system, that very same system. Here to talk about all things Kramer, will you please welcome... In the trenches, Wayne Kramer. Hello, Wayne. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much you're, for doing this. You're in Sweden? I am in Stockholm, Sweden, and you are, I think, on the West Coast some, somewhere, right? I'm in Los Angeles. Well, thank you for making up early. Yeah. This, the techno- well, I'm up early anyway. I have a seven-year-old. Um, <clears throat> the technology is stunning. Isn't it now we can actually afford to do these types of things, you know, at a, at a kind of a high quality level? That's what we try to do now. And I try imagine if we would have had the same technology years ago. Do you think we could have gotten our word out and our message out easier or would it have been the same sort of BS? Oh, it would be just like this. It just would have been 20 years ago. <laughs> well, the... There comes the screens. Here comes the technology. There comes the color. Ladies and gentlemen, Wayne Kramer in full living color. Well, there are so many things that we I do want to talk about because I have gone down the rabbit hole of all things uh, MC5 and then all your solo stuff, all your solo work that you've been doing uh, for years and years, plus the work that you do with JL Guitar Doors. We're going to cover all that, um, but we'd like to start off with a little section we call Going Back to get forward. So Vic, you want to hit that? And aptly enough, uh, you, we have the, we have the, uh, motors, the motorcycle sound, but, uh, that's where you're from. You're from the motor city and, uh, not, not in California any, you know, now that you're in California, but you're born and raised in the motor city area, right? Yeah, in the city of Detroit. Yeah. I was born in Lincoln Hospital, April 30th, 1948, right after the earth cooled. <laughs> well, it's getting warm again, <clears throat> let me tell you. Yeah. 
<laughs> Guy's broke. Well, the thing is, I always like to tell people how they started playing music and what was your influences growing up. But you started MC5 at such a young age, I feel that that's always been part of your DNA. It's always been MC5 and then all all the uh, roads that, that go from there. But were there some early influences that you had that uh, even sparked that interest to put together MC5? Of course. Um, you know, everything has has a precedent. Right. <laughs> no, none of this is uh, invented out of whole cloth. <clears throat> so the things that influenced me um, were the early electric guitar players, um, Dwayne Eddy, uh, and certainly Chuck Berry, because Dwayne's music was instrumental, and I was attracted to the tone of his guitar. <clears throat> if you heard it on a Seberg jukebox, a big Seberg, like you'd find in a, a hot dog hamburger joint. They had Wurlitzers too as well, or, or was Wurlitzer? Wurlitzer, yeah. And, you know, when he'd go, boom, 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 and Rebel Rouser, it would shake your your guts. <laughs> and I said, I like this. I want more of this. And then, of course, Chuck Berry uh, was a great um, uh, lyricist and a great poet. And so he told the stories of this imaginary teenage world that I found incredibly uh, compelling and attractive. Um, and then, you know, the ventures and, and that whole genre of, um, we call them garage bands today, but they were like one hit wonders, uh, instrumental groups like the Royal Teens and their big hit Woohoo <laughs> or Johnny and the Hurricanes and Red River Rock. Those are all the songs I started off learning how to play. Well, the thing that, uh, I see the correlation through all those bands is there's a lot of volume. You're talking about those old jukebox sounds, but then we move on to volume. And that's obviously one of MC5's trademark is these big, big sounds, loud uh, guitar amps. And even in the early days, um, I would say that there was some, I was just going to say, there was this Vox amp that you guys uh, were able to procure. And that's a very early picture of MC5, I do believe, or unless it was a band before that, but I'm thinking that's early, early lineup of MC5. And were the amps that the Beatles used, plus that whole vibe, was that influenced as you influencing you as well? Well, yeah, of course. We were <clears throat> kids that grew up I mean, I started playing in bands before the first wave of British, the British musical invasion and uh, was hugely influenced by it. I mean, <clears throat> you know, Vox amps were unavailable in America. And how did you guys uh, get those? <laughs> well, we 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 hustled a guy <laughs> into thinking he was our manager and we got him to sign a loan to to buy all this equipment with and promised we'd pay him back from our gigs which we never did wow well you know what yeah. those, those amps back in those days those amps were expensive i think they were about three grand or something for the whole setup right or i mean it's, no. 
I don't think it was that much. I think they, they were probably eight or nine hundred dollars each, which was still a huge amount of money. And yeah, I guess it was 65 or 66. That's right. And that's right before things start uh, taking off because you guys are bashing it out at clubs. And I know that uh, one of the places that you was it called the Grand Theater, the Grand Ballroom in Detroit? Grand D. Well, now, wait a second. Is it true that it's just Grand D? Yeah, you, you yeah. do pronounce that E. Okay, because yeah. I, all right. I actually, full disclosure, I watched a, uh, um, <laughs> I watched an, uh, a YouTube piece about uh, Fred Fred Smith, and he's from West Virginia. And they were inaugurating mm-hmm. him into the West Virginia uh, rock and roll fame, and the, and the guy kept saying, you know, the grandee, and I was like, oh well, he's from West Virginia. He's just saying he's saying the E. <laughs> He's, he's not pronouncing it right. I th- the E is silent. I'm, I'm, I'm corrected. I'm the idiot. Okay. The grandee. Tell us about yeah. those gigs that you had there because that that place, that it became an institution for you guys. Uh, a local entrepreneur, a man named Russ Gibb, <clears throat> had gone to California and seen the psychedelic ballroom scene and decided to try to bring that to Detroit and uh, yeah, there's a that's before I comb my hair down. I still I had my put my that pump. picture back up, Vic. Come on, I want to I want to see these these old school photos. These are great. Yeah, but you can see the British influence there. You know, we've got our guitars up high, <clears throat> and those are our that's our Vox equipment. And um, and they wanted a band. Russ wanted a band that could play its own music that had its own songs and its own sound, but could still rock the audience to make them dance. And there was only one band in Detroit that could do both things. And that was us. So we got the gig as the house band. So we, we opened the joint. We played there uh, two or three nights a week for years. I mean, that was our steady gig. It was um, the apotheosis of my career as a musician, because now I was fully a professional. We earned uh, $125 a night, <laughs> $25 a man. We played two nights a week. That was 50 bucks a week. My rent was 10 bucks a week. So I had arrived. Yeah, you're living large, man. I was living large, <laughs> you know, and, 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 it was exciting being in the band, and of course, I met all the girls I, I could handle, and I was part of something bigger. I was part of a community, and uh, and it was just a t- terrifically exciting time to be um, alive. It sounds like you were living the Detroit version of what the Beatles were living in Hamburg with, you know. Yeah, with same their, kind of thing. Cutting your teeth. Time. Cutting your teeth, becoming pros, and and you know, eventually, all the way to uh, recording that first MC5 record at that venue, right? Yeah, that's where we put in our ten thousand hours. <laughs> but you know, we put in um, five thousand hours before that playing in the clubs in Detroit. In those gigs, you played um, five sets a night. 45 on, 15 off. 
that was where you learned how to play and and uh, entertain an audience. Well, let me get some cl- clarification. Do you like? Do you refer to it because you are the man that's been there since day one? Do you refer to it as the MC Five or just MC Five? Um, both. Okay, I just want to make sure. I think the is is more colloquial English. Yeah. The, just calling it MC Five seems to be more European. There you go. That's why I'm in Sweden. I will call it the MC5 for the duration of the show. Now, now the folks that are in our chat room right now, and uh, let's see how well they know uh, some MC5 trivia, because I did actually look it up, because I wanted to make sure that I knew what the MC was. Could be a lot of things, motorcycle, this and that. It's Motor City 5, right? Or is it? We, we we use that, but we also use, as you referred to, um, a lot of other variations. <laughs> Motorcycle, marijuana cigarette, right. morally corrupt, morally much corrupt. cock. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. One of the most... Mustard and ketchup. Mustard and ketchup. Well, I guess the C would be ketchup in Europe. <laughs> Somewhere. So... Let me ask you this. One of the most famous or infamous gigs, however anybody wants to look at it, and kind of where it started the reputation, and I don't know if it might have started before that, was when you guys played the uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago. You played at the park, and that was at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. And as you all know, that there is a thing called the Chicago 7, which came about right in that thing. So if I was to ask you what came first, the MC5 or the Chicago 7, it would have been the MC5. Correct? Yeah, but that, you know, that gig was like dozens and dozens of gigs we did in those days. I mean, my philosophy of how to how to be in a band is you play anywhere and everywhere they let you play. Uh and uh, so we would play uh, benefit concerts and free concerts in the parks. Um, and so when the, the yippies called up and said, we're going to do this festival to be a counterpoint to the Democratic Convention, right. we said, sure, of course. Yeah, that's, that's the day there. So you can, That's Phil Oaks right there. Okay, so what you can see right now is that uh, this is actual footage that we were able to, to find from that day at the uh, Democratic National Convention, 1968. I think it was um, what what we were able to, to, to find and find out was that there were supposed to be a bunch of other bands that um, were going to show up, but it was the MC5 being the only band that actually really performed that day, and did you perform that day because, and I saw that going back, if we can go full screen, Vic, real quick. Um, when I saw us going to uh, you playing on the ground, was is there's a rumor that the flatbed truck was supposed to be your stage. Now, did, was that actually something that happened? And that, did that cause some problems with the overall tensions that were rising? Well, the tension was from the police. Um, They were heavy-handed, riding um, Harley-Davidson tricycles through the crowd. 
um, provoking fist fights with kids, um, you know, plain clothes, police uh, beating kids up. So that's where the tension came from. Um, the thing with the flatbed truck is the, the yippies tried to get the truck in. The police wouldn't allow it. So we set up on the ground. We had uh, no electricity, so we had to go ask the guy at the hot dog stand if we could <laughs> plug into his power to run our rig. And that's where you became the mud, mustard ketchup five mustard at ketchup. that point. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So, 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 so he allowed you to plug in. So you guys ended up doing that show on the ground. And now I'm always curious is because then you see in the movies, you know, you see a lot of violence that ends up happening throughout the course of the night. By that time, had you guys packed up, got out of town or were you all just wrapping up your cords and then all of a sudden mayhem sort of ensues? It's been my experience that when the band stops playing, the riot starts. Once the crowd doesn't have something to focus on, then it it implodes. And that's what happened in Chicago. We saw it coming. We knew that, you know, the, the vibe. If you see photographs of that day, kids aren't smiling in the audience. You know, usually when you play outdoors, it's a kind of special thing. Right. So we knew that uh, the Chicago police were the biggest gang in town and that they were going to, there was going to be mayhem. So we, the minute we finished, we packed our shit up, threw it in the van and, and got out of Dodge. (laughs) You're getting back to somewhere safer, Detroit. Yeah. (laughs) Probably the first time you've ever said that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that's good. You guys, we're hanging out here, folks, just um, having some a great conversation with Wayne Kramer, talking about some old times. We're going to talk about all the uh, stuff coming up to what he's up to today, especially with uh, the organization that he uh, helps run called Jail Guitar Doors. But uh, if you're just joining us right now, Wayne Kramer, to my side right there, and you are listening to In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. So hit that subscribe button right now if you are um, just new to us right now. And, uh, yeah, we're still talking MC5. This is with the classic lineup. Because I know that there has been a few lineup changes, you know, early on. And, but then the, 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 the uh, lineup I'm referring to is obviously you. You've been there from the beginning. Uh, Fred Sonic Smith, um, Rob Tyner, vocals, uh, Michael Davis, uh, Dennis Thompson. Um, I see that uh, Rob Tyner in the very beginning was playing bass. Is that true? Well, yeah, we tried it for a while, but a problem emerged in that Fred and I had already been playing for years and, you know, we could get around our guitars fairly competently. And Rob had just picked up the bass. And so he really needed a lot more woodshedding. He needed to, to practice a lot more. And so we had a conflict where a gig came up and I said, yes, of course we'll come and play. And Rob said, no, we were supposed to just rehearse tonight. And I said, yeah, but it's a gig. It's about the gig. Well, no, we got to rehearse. And so he quit the band. And then later we brought him back as just the singer. Aha. Okay. So that's how it all worked out. 
Yeah. And we need, we, you know, a band needs uh, a front man, a crazy guy with a lot of crazy ideas to be the front man. So he was perfect. Well, you're that, you're a bit of a crazy guy with a lot of crazy ideas and a lot of smart ideas as well. So, and that's one thing I have noticed that, uh, going through older, um, older footage and, having the uh, pleasure of touring with you as we did in early 2020, right before yeah. the world shut down. Uh, Alice right. Cooper and MC50 went out and it was a very good time. But you do occasionally uh, enjoy fronting the band as well. And, yeah. and you do and you do your share of singing as well. But you do have that uh, lead vocalist as well. Has that always been sort of the staple? Yeah, I'm good for a, a, a few songs every night. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I like to keep my hand in it. <laughs> I, I get exactly where you're coming from because that's my perfect scenario. Like, sing a couple songs and then let let someone do all the hard woodshedding and then maybe uh, pop in for a quick, you know, fronting. Make say your point and then and then you know you don't you can sing tomorrow and the next night and the next night. <laughs> oh well, I mean. We have somebody in common that uh, you were listening to or was around that scene, uh, and myself. I've been play. I've been working for him for many, many years. But uh, what were your first impressions uh, when you saw the Alice Cooper band? Because that's actually, a, you know, I'm I'm skipping a little bit forward from uh, letting the people speak. But uh, NH uh, Wild Bill. Uh, had asked a question saying the first impressions of seeing the Alice Cooper group play when you saw them. I, I saw the band as, uh, as uh, comrades, you know, as, as brothers in um, expanding the, the artistic potential of rock and roll, of, of being able to do more than just stand up there and play some songs, but to, you know, find some creativity in a theatrical sense, in the visual sense of uh, the performance. You know, we, when we're playing, we're using the music um, and we're using some stage techniques, lighting. We're certainly using dance. And, and then, you know, you, you're kind of closing in on costumes and scripted ideas uh, or a little vignettes or... In our case, it took the form of agiprop uh, political street theater. And Alice's was more purely theoretical, I mean, theatrical. Right. But I loved him nonetheless. I mean, I didn't think any less of, of the Alice Cooper band because they didn't share our political stance. Uh, and I felt like they did personally, but they didn't incorporate it into their work. And that's all right with me. Not everybody has to man the barricades. There's other work that needs to no, be done. In fact, in fact, that is like during the introduction, I say that that is sort of an unwritten rule a lot of times to not involve politics and religion in your music because you realize that your audience is so, so has such a wide spectrum. But MC5 was very uh, committed uh, from the beginning to having a stance and where do you think that came from? Do you, I mean, could it have come a little bit from your manager or was that, you know, because I know that like with the first album and, uh, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but John Sinclair, founder of the White Panthers, he he pseudo managed you or managed you or in, in some respect, did his influence have? Is that where all the political stuff came from? Well, you know, the, this idea that we, we're not going to talk about religion and politics, those are the most interesting things to talk about. <laughs> what <laughs> else go. is there that's, that matters? You know, those are the things that you matter. Put it that way, yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, it, <clears throat> certainly I was influenced by Sinclair, who was um, a little older than me, uh, better educated than I was, and really was um, a repository of cultural, musical history in terms of jazz and rhythm and blues. He knew this music. He knew the people who created it. He knew the context that it fit into and how it fit into American life, into our lives. But it, it wasn't so much that he influenced the band or he influenced me. We were all part of a generation that rejected the way the older generation was conducting the business of the world. You know, that political leaders, we, we could not bear the hypocrisy anymore. You know, just the lying, the misrepresentation, you know, telling us that the, the communists in Vietnam are going to take over because their domino game is going to. Why does this all will, sound like a current episode right now of what you see when you even open up your social media? It Has it really come again all full circle? And, it, and, and is it cyclical? I don't think it's cyclical. I think it, you know, many of the things that we're confronted with today uh, in public life and public discourse have never been dealt with. You know, the the lingered, the, yeah. the the results of slavery are only now coming to the fore. You know that the that the the conservative right in America wants teachers to not teach critical race theory. Well, that's just an extension of what's been happening all along in history books that, that whitewash American history. You know, I never heard about the Tulsa massacre in history class. I never heard about the riots in my own city in the 1940s. There was a deadly, gigantic uh, riot in Detroit where um, dozens of white families' homes, black families' homes were burned down and they were hung in the streets of Detroit. I never heard that in, in history. Yeah. So, you know, co that cover-up is what's finally, the sheet has been pulled off and we're talking about those things today and they need to be talked about. They need to be confronted, dealt with, accepted, and then that'll allow us to move forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could see it on stage with you, that commitment and just straightforwardness, directness. You know, the, you would say something, even when we were in, in Australia and, and New Zealand, you would say what you felt you needed to say and people accepted it. Some people didn't. That's okay. But you okay. know what? 
It's my stage. <laughs> I love it. You want to say something, start your own band and play your own gigs. This is my stage. <laughs> well, I think I like the fact that you talked about you were part of this scene, this Detroit scene. And, you know, I, I get some of these rumors out, some of these uh, urban legend, if you will. But is it true that because uh, Iggy Pop was around at that time as well. So was MC5 and Iggy Pop signed on the same day to the same label? Did that actually happen? Yeah, I made it happen. Hey, all right. So you got Iggy's deal. The, yeah, I got him the deal. The um, A&R man, or <clears throat> we used to call him a talent scout uh, <laughs> from the label, a wonderful brother named um, Danny Fields, asked me at one point, were there any other bands around uh, like the MC5? And I said, no, there, there are no more bands like the MC5, but you should hear the Psychedelic Stooges, our brother band. Um, you, might, you might hear something there. And <clears throat> so he did, and it blew him away. He loved Iggy and the band and the sound. He said, this is a music I've been waiting for all my life. <laughs> wow. Great. Well, I mean, right out of the gate, you guys, it seemed things were going handed to you on a silver platter. You're on the cover of Rolling Stone before the album even comes out, right? So things look pretty good, but then controversy and, you know, maybe it's just speaking your mind the way you want to present the band uh, leads to controversy and Electra is no more. So, well, to be accurate, we were crazy. I mean, <laughs> that's what I want to we hear. Were fucking insane. <laughs> and, you know, we did things that, uh, you know, I, I run, I have a little label now myself and I wouldn't, I wouldn't sign me. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, you know, we were just, we were kids, and we had no idea what we were doing, and uh, either did John, and I mean, he did his best to kind of uh, guide us in business in our business life, but none of us really had a handle on how business worked, how, what publishing splits were, how commissions worked, revisions. Yeah. You know, we had no idea about any of this stuff, and nor did we care. I mean, we were in it for the music and the girls and, and the party the, and, the, and the recognition. Yeah, the party. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, like like young people often are. Yeah, yeah, of course. But then I mean, I, I counsel young people, young musicians all the time. And, you know, I'm kind of wasting my breath. Because they're not going to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you've been there, done that. It's yeah. hard to tell someone. Yeah, I, I, I have a 15-year-old and an and a 18-year-old, so I know exactly so what you're So you really know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, it, and the thing is, even though the times have changed, the it's, it's different circumstances because, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want the tools that they have now 
maybe with music it would be it would have been nicer to have sort of the music tools that we have the recording equipment uh this sort of platform that we actually get to communicate on yes that would be cool but all those pressures of social media and the feeling you know where you can't shut off you're always connected i don't know if i would want that i could i could escape in my room and play music I mm-hmm. could escape for hours on end, and that was my therapy. And you know what, folks? If you ever want to listen to how to play, and I saw this on YouTube again today, the, if you want to listen to the right way to play Kick Out the Jams, uh, Wayne has a YouTube video out that you put out with a kid, one of, you, you know, one of your mentors, I believe, um, or not mentor, but one of the people that you mentor. And uh, you do a great job of teaching the actual riff, Kick Out the Jams. So find that on uh, YouTube. Maybe someone can put it up in our chat. That's, right our, that's our Professor Wayne series. It is the Professor Wayne series. Well, you, you call yourself a lot of things, but you're not a professor, but you are a brother. You say Brother Wayne Kramer all the time. And is that is that sort of inclusion of a, of a group or a gang, or where did that come from? Well, we used that expression a lot in the 60s. Um, you know, that, that there was a, um, a kinship that we all shared uh, in our rejection of the establishment. And uh, it just felt like the forces of, of uh, capitalism and competition were trying to pull us apart. <clears throat> so one way we could combat that, militantly oppose that, is by pulling ourselves together, you know, modeling ourselves on um, uh, Native Americans, that we had a tribe, we were a tribe. We had, we modeled ourselves on uh, people in the black community who called each other brother and cousin. And so we incorporated that language into our usage. And I still use it today. And, you know, it it's a great expression of camaraderie and uh, love and respect. To You know, if I refer to someone as a good brother, that's a man that, you know, is is uh, worthy of, of, uh, of respect. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on In the Trenches, uh, Brother Wayne Kramer. And uh, you did not wear your hazmat suit, though. You said you would in the promo. And I, yeah, <laughs> you don't I need to wear a hazmat. <laughs> I couldn't find it. <laughs> You're always a sharp-dressed man, though. Um, there's one thing I do want to ask you, though, because uh, going back to some of those inf- early guitar influences and perhaps some of the moves, um, there was a move, a guitar move, that I have, because I'm, I love Chuck Berry as well, um, but my Chuck Berry comes from Andy McCoy, uh, Hanoi Rex. That move right there, the foot, the toe, and the foot roll across the stage. Where was that uh, influence that, or did you invent that? Hell no. I, I got that from James Brown. Aha. Are you, you just you just had a you just had a guitar strapped on, and that was it. Okay, can we go back to that real quick? Just do it in slow mo now. I don't want to put our producer Vic into this thing shaking his head but uh I wanted to get those moves down um <laughs> he's gonna try and find it I, I and uh these are the types indicative of the type of shows that you guys would do all the time right correct such a great all, any chance we got we played yeah and you do see a pretty diverse audience uh, you know all throughout the crowd 
And of course, you see you upgraded your Voxes to Marshall Stacks, which yeah, the Voxes were they were terrible. They blew up all the time. As did those marshals. We used to have three sets of them, and we'd take two sets on the road because one set was always in the shop. <laughs> but the thing is, that. Now, do, but do you think it might have something to do with the turning up the amps all the way to 11 all the time? Because MC5 has that reputation of being one of the loudest bands around. But, you know, the goal wasn't volume. The goal was tone. And that's and the way you got that tone with those amps, though, right? In those days, we hadn't, you know, they hadn't developed the, the technology to be able to get that kind of tone at a more reasonable volume. Because what you want to do is overdrive the, the tube stages of the amp to get what we now know as harmonic distortion. The overtones, if you play a major chord and you've got the, you're overdriving the tube stage, um, you'll hear overtones of the notes that you're playing. I mean, it makes a, a, a simple- harmony or a wall of sound. Yeah, it makes a simple uh, major chord sound like a whole symphony. You know, you can hear the flutes up at the top and the uh, uh, piccolos and, you know, the brass in the middle and the lower strings on the bottom with an electric guitar. Now, I, I saw you. So if we could have got that sound at, at a volume that, you know, wouldn't have destroyed our hearing, that would have been great. <laughs> but we didn't. So we played them loud. Now, do you have a, do you have any one uh, particular, because I saw you play through an orange amp setup as well. Do you have anyone in, that you like between the Vox, the orange, the Marshall, or maybe something else that was always your go-to? My go-to amps have almost always been Fender. Okay. Fender makes a hot rod DeVille uh, last 20 years, I guess, that are just fantastic. Great tone, all the volume you could possibly use in a 65 watt amp. Um, and they work every night. That's the most important thing. Consistency. I plug it in, I know it's gonna work, it's gonna sound great every night well, we're working here at in the trenches in fact we're working so hard that we have to take a quick quick commercial break right now and but we're going to come back with part two and we're going to talk about some of the stuff you're doing along with uh, the work with jail guitar doors i want to talk a little bit about uh, all the solo stuff as well as uh, some of your stuff with film scoring if that's cool with you we're here with Brother Wayne Kramer. Uh, coming up, part two, folks. Enjoy this commercial real quick. Hello, folks. Roxy here. Hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I'm very excited today to announce our newest sponsor, Biodynamic. They produce some of the industry's very best quality microphones and headphones, and that's why they're the perfect fit right here in the trenches. You're hearing my voice today through the great TG V70 microphone. This mic is perfect for any home studio, Plus, I get to use it on stage. I have paired the mic with the legendary Biodynamic Studio headphones, and they're called the DT770 Pros. These are amazing for analytical listening, truly the most authentic sound experience I've ever had. So whether it's listening to a podcast or one of your favorite albums, I definitely recommend these. Treat yourself right with Biodynamic Gear, the gold standard in high fidelity. Now, let's get back to the podcast. And here we are. 
back with Wayne Kramer of the MC5 and so much more you're listening to In the Trenches. If you are listening to us on one of our audio broadcasts, thank you very much, but make it on your way over to our live stream platform, which is Ryan Roxy Official on YouTube. And then while you're there, just hit that subscribe button as well. Um, I wanted to move on, if that's cool. And anybody that's in the chat, you have the live chat. Uh, we can put up this, uh, any questions that you might have for all the interesting things that uh, we are talking about with Wayne. Um, I want to move on a little bit to, and it's up to you, whether you want to touch it or not. Uh, there was a break. There was definitely a break after the three albums, uh, you know, after um, Kick Out the Jams back in the USA and High Time. I think High Time was was probably aptly titled because it was a high time for you, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> and then what I like about your story is that I've heard, you know, you say, look, I went to jail, but it didn't change me the way you think it was supposed to change someone for the, you know, completely reformed. But what did it do to you and what, you know, and what did it make you coming out? Oh, it changed me. Um, the penitentiary experience is so traumatic that it changes everybody that experiences it. And it didn't change me for the better. You know, I went in a kind of bright eyed, bushy tailed young man with big hopes and big ambitions and, and, uh, and a kind of inflated sense of my own importance. Um, and um, prison has a way of inculcating in you uh, a sense of meaninglessness that, that you really, you are a problem. You're um, a crime, you're uh, a prison number, you're a bed space, you're a cell space, <clears throat> and that uh, you have no, you're of no use in the world, that you're a big problem for the world. And <clears throat> not to mention, uh, you know, that the culture of prison um, can build in you a sense of uh, certainly uh, violence, racism, bitterness, resentment, defeat. Um, these are the, the, the characteristics that, uh, that prison can build into a human being. You know, even the architecture of a prison itself is designed to make you feel as though you have no value in the world. You know, the, the, the prison architecture is, is uh, stark beyond belief. You know, it's an anti-human atmosphere. Um, you know, they, they strip any sense of humanity from you. And you know, it's, uh, it's, embarrassing, it's um, degrading, uh, and, you know, all this stuff can play on a human being's psyche to cause real damage. I came out 
certainly more cynical. Right. Um, certainly, maybe resentful, even to a point. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and and um, and it's taken me a long time to to go back. You know, I made a record a few years ago, a free jazz album. And I tried to, it was called Lexington, which is the name of the facility that I served my sentence in. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to articulate my feelings <clears throat> in my first language, which is music. Aha. And, There's the end. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And, uh, and just, you know, get it out and go back and, and try to understand what ha what happened to me. You know, how did I end up there? How did it uh, harm me? Um, what can I do to to come out of this better? Uh, you know, it, prison is no joke. You know, people make, there's a lot of humor surrounded prison. And there's a lot of... Um, Humor involved in it. I mean, you, you know, humans have to laugh to to uh, get through uh, the worst times that we go through. But um, you know, sending someone to prison is not a joking matter. Prison rape is not a joke. Huh. You know, oh, don't drop the soap. <laughs> that's not a joke. No, that's it's true. also not what people think it is. You know, a pr prison rape is is not automatic when you go to prison it's not you're not going to be confronted with it it does happen it's a real thing but it's not as hollywood and uh television uh presented you know this these scenes that we've all seen where the new guy the new fish right. is, is entering the prison and he's walking down the cell block and he's, and getting, all, he's getting berated by everybody down the road yeah all these thugs and, you know, they're looking over the railing and going, yummy, yummy. That never happened to me in the, in the three prisons I did time in. That never happened. And I don't know anyone that ever did time that that happened to. I mean, this is a complete fabrication. Right, right. Well, I know that the prison that you were in had sort of like a crazy history. This, uh, the Federal Narcotics Farm at Lexington, Kentucky. Right. It was actually on this in the 40s. Uh, I think Leona Helmsley actually was incarcerated there as well. And now, is this something that actually happened again? I loved clearing up when I talked to the source and I'm talking to Brother Wayne Kramer here, folks. Uh, did you actually meet up with a former member of the MC5 while you were serving time in one of these prisons? I did. And who was yeah. that? It was the bassist, Michael Davis. Uh -huh. Michael had uh, gotten into his own jackpot with the DEA and ended up being sentenced to the same facility I was in. You know, musicians have, have gone to prison from forever. We have a place <laughs> reserved for us in prison. And, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of really great artists in prison right now today. I, I see them all the time. I work with them all the time. Well, the and to, just just as a side, aside to who you might meet in prison, I happened to serve my sentence 
big chunk of it with a man named Red Rodney. His name was Robert Chudnik. He was a jazz trumpeter from Philadelphia who replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker Quintet. Wow. He was a formidable musician no doubt. and played with a, a expertise and facility that you don't hear trumpet players play with even today. He was, he was in the Dizzy Gillespie era of trumpeters with phenomenal technique. You know, he could read fly shit. He, he understood and had committed to memory the entire American songbook. Um, he knew thousands of songs and he became my musical father and my mentor and my teacher. And, and it was certainly the high point of my experience to be able to play and work and study with him. So I went into prison, fairly adventurous rock guitar player, came out, competent musician. <laughs> was, was music still at the forefront when you got out or were you disillusioned at that point? Um, or was it when you did get out, I, I'm, I'm definitely going back to playing or did you take some time off? No. No, I couldn't wait to get back to work. I love my work. <laughs> Are you kidding? I, want, I, I, I was still in the halfway house, and a guy came over and said he had a band, and they had a regular gig at a bar in Detroit, and would I come and be their special guest on Friday and Saturday nights? I said, hell yes. <laughs> and I got, you know, that got me um, – freed from the restrictions of the halfway house where you have to sign in and sign out every night. And right. so I could stay out till four in the morning and play my gig. And Well, I can, I can imagine one of the biggest temptations, not wanting to go back to prison, but then playing with Johnny Thunders and putting together gang war at that point. Uh, that must have been a trip because at this point you start making records, you start producing, you start playing and being a force in the punk rock world. I think it's the late 70s, 79, perhaps early I think, 80s. I came out in 78. Okay. So, yeah, in 79, I was trying to work as a producer. And, you know, I started that band with Johnny that was um, uh, doomed to failure. Born to lose. Right? Born <laughs> Snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> that sounds like my football team. Actually, you know what? We have the similar, if you're a Detroit Lions fan, because Alice Cooper is, I'm an Oakland Raider fan. We always seem to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, that's yeah, our famous thing. I have no allegiance to professional sports franchises. Good for you. Good for you. That means you're up for I, I like sports. I like, you know, I like seeing people who do athletic events well. I enjoy all that. I like going to the games and, and you know, I go to professional boxing cards and, I, you know, I like the competition. I just have no use for the professional franchises. Good for you. See? It exploits the workers. To this day, you know what? Speaking your mind, speaking the truth. Wayne Kramer here on In the Trenches right now. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, this punk rock scene that you were involved in. And a lot of that you had obviously this, uh, a great reputation from being in the MC five. Yeah. 
Um, did that carry over and help you get play with these guys or had you just toured with them and, and known them for years when you start uh, working with names like, uh, you know, with Johnny Thunders and maybe perhaps Gigi Allen or how did you guys meet there? Because that's a, that's an interesting story as well. Well, Gigi Allen, you know, part of what I've done over the course of my life is studio work. Uh, someone will call up and say, Wayne, we're recording this track. We'd love to have you do put a solo on it. Um, and uh, that's what happened with Gigi Allen. And when I met him, he was just a really uh, enthusiast. Yeah, that wasn't the guy I worked with. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he was, uh, this This was uh, in the early 80s. He was just a ebullient young cat with his, excited about his band and his songs. And he had me there on the session and, uh, you know, it was fun. And I, you know, I got paid. And so that, you know, that's all I knew. You know, he had not yet um, evolved into the bizarre scatological performance artist <laughs> of later. Do you, do you have any tracks as a studio musician that perhaps hardcores don't even know about that you're like, oh, yeah, that was my, my, my solo on that? I don't know. They show up from time to time. You know, my wife will come in and say, hey, did you remember doing this session? Listen to this. I'll say, well, that's me, but mm, I don't remember. It. <laughs> <laughs> Depended on how high I was that night. Oh, boy. Oh boy, the party was. I remember most of it, but you know when you when you, you combine uh, opiates and alcohol, uh, you're you know it's like an amnesiac combination, and you don't remember what you did the day before. What got you into the film scoring world then? Because then you enter this world that I feel is a mystery to me. As much as I play music, I've been involved in music. I've been involved in the touring in the. You got into scoring. And then when I looked at what you've scored, there's some of my favorite, like some of my favorite movies or films or, or TV series and stuff. Because I mean, uh, and a lot of people might not know this, but you scored and, and had some, uh, scored music for uh, Will Ferrell's Talladega Nights, Step Brothers. Oh, wow. There you go. Vic, you got that. That was pretty good on the timing. Nicely done. And uh, Step Brothers, as well as one of my favorite uh, HBO shows, uh, Eastbound and Down. How did the whole world of scoring come about for you? And it was it just is it just knowing, having connections, or do you reach back into that MC5 uh, folklore of, of Wayne Kramer? Well, it's certainly a business of relationships. And... Um, you know, of, of access to to film directors, film uh, screenwriters, uh, film producers, television producers. Um, I met a woman, my wife set up a lunch with a woman who was the head of music at Fox Sports. And we we're just having lunch and having a nice time. And she asked me if she said she had this idea for a NASCAR some music for NASCAR uh, that that um, lionize the guys that work in the pits, not the drivers, but the guys, the mechanics in the pits. So while we're eating, I said, let's see, 
A quitter never wins and a winner never quits, but the heart of every champion is working in the pits. And she said, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Could you write that as a song? So I went home, I wrote it. it. Ended up that they didn't use the track in the promotion for the NASCAR events like we had planned, but they had another show called 54321, which was extreme sports. And they said, would you try to write us theme for the show. And I knew it was just one of those lucky moments when the whole thing comes to you all at once. Yeah, I have it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I said, I got this. I got this. Came home, set up, jammed the thing out, sent it over. They loved it. So that was my 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 toe in the water for the in the film's television film business is it is it ironic that it comes from sort of a car driven you're from detroit motor city five it comes from some sort of you know uh car racing type of 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 analogy you know no 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 coincidence at all no had nothing to do with that (laughs) she didn't she didn't know anything about the mc5 i was nice Nice man at lunch, you know, my, she was friends with my wife and, you know, it was her girlfriend's husband. She didn't know, she didn't ever heard of the MC5. But I'm saying, I'm just saying it's a coincidence for me to say that you're from the, you're from Detroit. It's ironic that you're from Detroit and it happens, but. uh, Well, it happened again in Talladega Nights, you know. There you go. They had a composer on the film um, who was competent with the orchestra, but his rock was awful. I mean, it was bad movie rock. <laughs> so the director and the um, music supervisor on the film was saying, what are we going to do? This rock music is terrible. And the supervisor was a friend of mine, a, a wonderful man named Hal Wilner. Hal said, why don't we call Wayne Kramer? You know, he lives here in L.A. You know, I'm sure he could do this. And as I said, you know, they wanted aggressive guitar rock for the race scenes. Said, so, yeah, I, I can do that. I know how to do that. And then I've, you know, I built a relationship with the director, who today is one of my best friends, and has, we've continued to be friends all these years. So, oh. yeah, I, you know, I mean, back the in most- the days, you used to make your guitars sound like dragsters. So why not? Why, <laughs> why wouldn't that be, you know, a nice a nice segue into it. Now, I, I'm I'm always curious about guys like uh, when you're doing a show, especially something like Eastbound and Down. Do you ever meet the actors that are in it? Like, did you ever meet Danny McBride in any of these types of uh, situations, award shows, or or events, or or do you do the music? It's already uh, you. It's the final product sent to you. You score music over it, or how does that work? Yeah, I I knew all those guys. Um, Jody and and Danny. Um, In that case, uh, yeah, what they do is they will um, do a rough assembly of the episode. Um, Ideally, you sit down in a room, it's called the spotting session. And what the spotting means is we're going to put this kind of music in this spot and that kind of music in that spot. And the music editor takes notes during this, you're watching the episode and people are talking and he's taking notes at two minutes and 35 seconds, you know, uh, a flute should come in. 
Oh, at five minutes and 29 seconds, we want guitar and big beats right there. Then you take that stuff back to your studio and you have your, your uh, editor's notes and you start um, writing the music. And it's got to fit. It's got to start at a certain point. It's got to end at a certain point. And, uh, you know, that's when a lot of the aesthetic uh, decisions are made. In the case of Eastbound and Down, I think we had two spotting sessions in three seasons. These guys, <laughs> they were terrible. <laughs> Just do what you do, Wayne. Do, do, yeah, your, do, do your Wayne Kramer thing. and it'll be I, I never knew what would go to finish until I watched the show on Sunday night. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music. I enjoyed I enjoyed the show immensely, folks. And Thank I'm enjoying you. this conversation with Wayne Kramer. Um, real quick, we're if you don't mind, I, I do want to talk about another one of those ironic things because in 1977, the Clash write a song called Jail Guitar Doors. And you're in it, basically. Maybe not a lot of people know about that, especially the ones that are watching in the chat right now. Um, but you're 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 the subject right well me and a couple other musicians uh, they refer to peter green and keith richards in the same song but i i'm i'm in the first verse the one that most people recognize yeah it was a great great show of solidarity uh from some brother musicians across the sea that i didn't know them you know i and you know from prison I was I would disavow any connection to this new punk music movement because in those days in prison punk had a different meaning. Punks were the guys that they wanted to make their girlfriends, guys that they had washing their socks and that wasn't me. Yeah. I actually watched an interview with Doing the research for you, it, it leads you to a lot of different places. And I watched an interview with Iggy Pop, and he was he was being interviewed saying he didn't like the term punk. At least this interviewer saying it. He hated it. Well, we all did. Yeah, punk was, those were fighting words. If you called somebody a punk, you better be ready to humbug. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready to humbug. I like it. Yeah, we're we're, we're going to... We're gonna have a problem here. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a few years later, and uh, again, this name Jail Guitar Doors comes up because uh, a friend of yours, a punk rocker, but I don't want to say the word without getting starting well, to fight. It, it, it has evolved to become a musical genre and a, you know style and a way of life. You know, it's a it, there's an attitude contained in in you know, being a punk these days, which, just, which is honorable. Just don't say it in the late sixties or you'll get in a humbug. But, uh, you're, you are, um, you get involved, you play sing, sing, you do a, a, an event in, in the actual prison sing, sing, uh, with Billy Bragg mm. and you feel compelled almost to bring this back this idea of jail guitar doors. And and I don't think Billy knows that you're in the clash song, right? Or how no, did he, that work? Well, we were back, we were getting ready. We're tuning our guitars up and uh, I see he's got jail guitar doors written on his guitar. 
And I said, Bill, what's up with that? And he said, oh, it's an old Clash B-side. Have you ever heard it? And I said, heard it? <laughs> Bill, it's me. the song's about me. <laughs> what you mean? I said, what are the lyrics? He said, right. Uh, let me tell you about wine and his deals of cocaine. Bloody fucking hell, it is about you. I forgot. He says he, he just blanked on the connection. And so he went on to explain to me that he wanted to honor Joe Strummer's life's work. Strummer told Billy, combine your love of music and your activism. You can do both things together which set Billy Bragg on his path. So a guy that worked with prison inmates, uh, rehabilitating prison inmates was using music, but they had no instruments. So he wrote Billy a letter and asked him to ask his rock star friends if they could donate guitars. Billy said, well, this is, I like this idea. I'll name it after that Clash B-side and this will give me a way to, to help people that are in prison. So when he explained all this to me, it was clear that this this was exactly what I was looking for, uh, a actions that I could take to first and foremost, deal with my own cynicism and my own um, lack of empathy and, and my own laziness um my own meaninglessness um because the only way i can militantly oppose that nihilism is by taking direct ethical action right. i have to do something it's not clicking a thing on the internet oh, i'll push this button yeah i'm in the movement i'm pushing a button <laughs> i mean get your ass up off the couch go outside meet up with some other people and make something happen there's a big difference between a being an active social justice activist and then being an internet social justice warrior. It's almost a pejorative to say internet social justice warrior. It's, it sounds like, I don't know, Karen at this point. But the, the thing is, you are into social justice. And you are into activism and you're doing something about it with Jail Guitar Doors. And so this is 2009. And is it, is it in, did you and your wife, Margaret, did you guys take this to the next level in the States or are you still involved with Billy? How's it, what's, what's happening with the organization, you know, from then up until now? Well, Billy continues to work in the United Kingdom. And we have taken over in this country. We've also reached out. We have uh, programs in Australia. While we were down there on tour together, I combined some Jail Guitar Doors work and made a visit to a prison and um, set up a load of guitars to go in. We've got, we've got fellow musicians down there. Um, as soon as the pandemic gets, uh, recedes enough to allow us to go back in, then we'll pick up where we left off. Today, um, our instruments and our programs are in over 160 American prisons. That's great. So we, we provide instruments <clears throat> for use as tools for rehabilitation. 
the instruments are not gifts. We don't gift anybody a guitar. The instruments represent a challenge. And the challenge is that you will do whatever you have to do to learn what happened, what went wrong, and what you can do to make sure you don't come back to these penitentiaries again. So if you accept our guitars, then you've accepted the challenge. You have to step up and do the hard work of positive change. And it can be done. It happens all the time. I know hundreds of, of men and women that have changed, that have gone to prison under worse conditions than I served under for longer sentences than I served and come out and been productive members uh, uh, of their families, with their friends, in their neighborhoods, in their cities. Well, that's very inspiring, and that's exactly what we try to do here on In the Trenches. I think there's no better time than to put up uh, the links that we have right now for you, because if people want to find out right now more about Jail Guitar Doors, they can reach out to some of your social media platforms. And I'm seeing on Instagram, at uh, official Wayne Kramer, on Facebook, Wayne Kramer with the uh, blue tick, as well as um, Twitter, at Wayne Kramer. And then there is Tara Graham Music. Music.com. Now, is I don't know about TerraGramMusic.com, but is there uh, any direct uh, place where people can find out more about this Jail Guitar Doors? Yeah, I'm surprised you don't have the link to JailGuitarDoors.org. That's, see, there you go. My, my producer's just putting his head right now, his hands up, and I don't know what, there it is. Thank you Fantastic. very much. So go you. to go. If you go there, you will learn uh, a great deal about who we are, what we do, how we do it, where we do it, and there will be a donate button. Um, funding is always a challenge um, doing this kind of work. And let me just add, <clears throat> I know we're, we're, we have limited time, but... If you, are you okay with talking? Because I'm... I'm okay right now. Do you have any place that you have to go? Do we have to cut off anytime soon? So no. let's, let's hang for a little while because I, there are a couple of things I want, I, I want to talk to you. But go ahead. Say what you want to say. So in the last seven years, we um, broadened our focus. You know, we've been working with adults in American prisons uh, since 2009. No. 2009? Yeah, yeah, it was 2009 yeah. when you guys started. Yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, and all that is is in place and and moving forward. Um, we're we're very happy with the relationships we have with various prison systems, um, and the acceptance we've uh, enjoyed and the uh, positive accomplishments. Um, <clears throat> but in the last seven years, we joined a network of thirteen arts organizations in, in Los Angeles County that work with young people that are criminal justice system involved. <clears throat> we work mostly in the, um, they call them youth camps, which is a terrible joke. They're not camps, they're prisons for children uh -huh. and juvenile halls. And we do this a, a variation on the same kind of programs that we run in the adult facilities. The young people are certainly more 
uh, oriented to hip hop and rap music. Uh, we can accommodate that. We can do that. We do do that. And um, what we discovered in, in our last seven years of working with young people is that if you if we don't have something to offer young people when they finish their sentence in the camp or in the juvenile hall, <clears throat> then they go back to the same neighborhood, the same family, and the same gang. And they catch another case and they come back into the system. The cradle to prison pipeline is a real thing. And these young people know it. I talk to boys 17, 18 years old that have two strikes that say, hey, I don't have a chance. I know I'm, I'm going to do life. I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. <clears throat> so what we determined is we need a place for them to go. We need a place to go after school. We need a place to go on weekends where they can continue the work that they started in the camps. We've, we've rented two buildings on 3rd Street in Los Angeles, about a mile and a half from our headquarters here in neutral gang territory. That means it's safe for the kids to come safe there. Stone. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and uh, we've, built, uh, we've built a recording studio, uh, which we're just uh, populating right now with gear, um, uh, full tracking room, full control room. Then we have um, a huge performance space where we can do poetry slams, have speaker nights, um, do DJ events, um, dance classes can happen there. The wow. place used to be a dance studio, so it's still got the mirrors on the wall, which we kept in one room. Another room will be a computer lab where we'll have a series of computer stations. So anything that can be taught by a human being to another human being using a computer, we can teach them. Because here in Los Angeles, 70% of the jobs are entertainment industry related. Right. There's a whole, there are hundreds and hundreds of jobs that are called below the line. Not the star of the movie, uh, but the guys that, and men and women that help make the movie happen. The guys that set up the lights, the guys that set up the stage, the guys that drive the trucks, the girls that make up the schedules, the men and women that do the lighting, uh, key grips. Um, these are all career jobs that are good paying union jobs with benefits that you can make a life on. Um, so what we, one of our goals is to expose our kids to these jobs. Because most opportunities, people yeah. these jobs exist. Right. We know all the people that do this kind of work from our work. I know grips, I know editors, I know sound editors, picture editors, lighting directors, who will all come in and work with our kids, teach them what this job is all about. Maybe this is a viable alternative to spending your adult life in the California Department of Corrections. Yeah, all in hopes of staying out of that system. Uh, yeah, and, and and I think, well, again, we'll put that that uh, link up if you're watching right now and want to find more information out. Uh, that's 
That's jailguitardoors.org right now. So we're going to, we're going to, let me just finish by sure, saying we're going to, um, we're, we're going to um, begin a propaganda campaign, internet campaign um, soon. Um, the, the center is called CAPO, Community Organizing, Community Arts Programming and Outreach. So it's a place where young people can go and they don't have to be a system involved. They can just be regular round the way kids and come over. They can learn how to write music. They can learn how to record. They can learn how to edit and they can learn a lot of other things too. We want to pro provide options for young people that don't have a lot of options. I was looking for a capo here in the studio somewhere. I know I have one. I just had an acoustic gig over the over the weekend, so I was going to show the, everybody in the Roxy Guitar Army what the capo is. But they all know what the capo is yeah. because you're their guitar fans here. Um, honestly, man, I'm enjoying this conversation so long. I know we're going a little bit over time. If that's okay for you, I want to keep going. Um, we have a few more minutes. I, I sure. do want to... Uh, sort of celebrate our fan of the week. We weren't able to have a fan of the week last week. And so this is where we get the people involved. Uh, there's been a lot of people that have been commenting in our live chat the whole entire show. Thank you very much for doing that. Thank you for supporting In the Trenches. So it's their turn to speak. But first, we have to acknowledge our fan of the week, Vic Hitting. <laughs> week's fan of the week this week's fan of the week kanak kavadi i know i'm messing up your last name but we loved the the ad that he did for your show and the promotion that he put out there and congratulations kanak he's always been he's a guitar player himself uh from india and uh huge strong supporter of the show and uh thanks for being fan of the week and of course there it you is you know, the other guitarist in MC50 on those tours we did together is of Indian um, origin. I, You know what? Let's talk about MC5 turning into MC50 on its 50th anniversary. Uh, you gave it a little bit of a, a name change. a tiny, You added a zero to it, and that was in 2018. And uh, the guitar player in question you are talking about was from Soundgarden, Kim Thiel. Kim Thiel. There That's he is. him right there with the hat on. <laughs> I love Kim and I love playing. I want to get him on the podcast as well. Um, I, I was looking at this lineup that you had put up because the one we had in Australia, you had uh, Kim on guitar. You had uh, Brendan uh, from Fugazi, right? Mm-hmm. Brendan Canty. And then, um, but I'm looking at, oh, and, and you had uh, Faith No More bassist Billy Gould yep. yeah, as well. Um and then, you, and then your singer was, um, where is he? Marcus Durant. Yes. And what was the band, Bay Area band? Zen Gorilla. Zen Gorilla. I love it. And I'm looking at some of these other names, too. You had Matt Cameron on drums playing for, yeah. for a while. And you had Doug, Doug Pinnock of King's X. Uh, yeah. Marcus Durant. Don Was. You, I mean, yeah. again, you know people that know people that know people, and you know everybody there. In fact, well, I'm old. I've been around for a while. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, I was talking with some guys this weekend uh, that wanted me to, to give a big hello out to you. They, um, 
There's a band called the Helicopters here in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, I was uh, hanging out. The gig I did was with Dragon. And Ah. uh, Dragon actually told me, he said, there would be no helicopters if it wasn't for MC5. So there you go. Nikki, Alex, Nikki Anderson and uh, Dragon both say hello. So, you know. Big love right back to them. Like, like I said, you know, everything has a precedent. So, you know, it, it, uh, Chuck Berry got me started. I got them started. They'll get other people started. Passing the torch. It's, uh, it's the way we roll. I love it. I love it. Well, let's let the people speak then, Vic. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? <laughs> we're trying we're trying to up the production but you know our, our producer's in a hotel room today but he's got he's doing a great I had job lamb, i had lamb for dinner last night oh boy there you go <laughs> hopefully not that one um we have one question because I, I i know you're living in la but uh, at brad cruz usa asks do you have a favorite new new Detroit rock band? Yes, there's an artist out of Detroit. Her name is Masha. And um, she recorded at the same studio. In fact, she works at the same studio we did Alice's last record. That's right. Um, And her music is unique she doesn't sound like anybody else doesn't sound like any other genre she's a totally uh or at least as far as i can tell original artist weird strange influences but but deeply passionate vocalizing um yeah she's she's my favorite new artist absolutely there you go. Well, we're, we, you know what? We both had something in 2020. We both have a track off of Alice's, some co-writing on a track of Alice's newest record, Detroit Stories. Um, you played some guitar on that album. You wrote, you wrote the songs. Uh, I think it's Go Man Go. Uh, you did some co-writing on that. I did a co-write on with Detroit City. And so we're both on an album in 2020. But uh, I, I, I would love to get back on the road at some point. Uh, together because it was a great time, it, uh, it, like as short as the tour lasted, but that was you know before the world shut down, right? It was fun. Uh, Alice, last thing he said, he came into our dressing room on the last night in New Zealand. He said, Wayne, what do you think? Has this been fun? And I said, Of course, this is a ball. Are you kidding? He said, Going to South America? I said, Sure, let's go. And then we came home to nobody's going to go anywhere for. A year and a half. Yeah, I know. I know. Shit. Tough. All right. Well, it's I'm getting back. I'm getting back to the people right now because this is our job right now. And at Kathy Grant dot seven one six five three, she is asked. And this is about a, a, one of the bands that you put together on your solo uh, stuff. How did the two thousand one Mad for the Racket album slash live show at the one hundred Club in London come about? Had you and Brian James from The Damned ever worked together before? No, we, we hadn't. Um, I'm trying to think. I might have met, actually met him th- 
through a music publisher. I can't, I'm not clear on that. All I know is one day he was in my life. We started to write some songs that seemed to be going pretty well. I called up a bunch of uh, my friends around town to ask them to come in and play. They all did, played beautifully, and we made that album. Well, you put that album cover back up because you can see that you can see the names that are involved over there. I mean, I'm seeing Stuart Copeland, uh, Duff McKagan, Clem Burke. Um, I, I've also see the names Lemmy that's involved, Ian Asbury from the Cult. So, I mean, was this some one of the first things that you had done with the label that you put together, uh, that you and your wife put together? It was an ice cream truck, by the way. I don't know if you can hear it, but that's the that those are that's the sound of an ice cream truck in Sweden. It sounds Good. haunting. It sounds like the give, purge. Give, give me an ice cream sandwich. Um, <laughs> yeah, we yeah we we put out a lot of stuff for a minute there, but our timing wasn't great on the label. You know, we the the I think we, I think we launched uh, the week of nine eleven. <laughs> which didn't help business. No. And, and we we decided to form a label at the end of Labels. this plastic disc. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of, of like, literally the end of labels where everyone's doing it now. Like, you know, not everybody has a, a, this type of studio that you have in the background. This is a real studio. I love this. Do you do a lot of work and in, in, uh, sort of, of your scoring work at, on in this yeah. desk in the studio. I do studio. everything here. Yeah, nicely done. I put the movie on the big screen up there. I see the big orange one. Yeah, and yeah. then down here, those all will have the sequencer on it. I have the mixer on one window, the sequencer on the other, and um, the editor on the third screen. So I I know where I'm at because there's a lot of um, you've got to fit things into an exact spot in film and television. You know, you're, you're not writing, when we write music like for bands or for, you know, ourselves, the song has to have a spine to it. The spine is the thing that says, here's the verse, here's the chorus, here's another verse, another chorus, a bridge, a solo, a verse, and two choruses out. That's yeah. the construction of it. Well, in, in scoring music for picture, there is no spine. The picture is the spine. That's what's telling you what, what happens in the music. So when the scene shifts, that's when the music shifts, not when it's time to go to the chorus. This it's, sounds like something you're going to be teaching at the new Jail Guitar Doors studios once you have that all set up. It just seems like another type of amazing sort of program that you could be teaching scoring as well. I'm, I'm open to the idea. Absolutely. It's a very, I, I wouldn't encourage people just like I don't encourage them to be professional musicians. This is a terrible job. You know, there's no benefits. There's no security. You get a gig, you play the gig. You got to go get another gig. <laughs> you get a gig, then all of a sudden the pandemic hits. So you start a podcast. <laughs> I know I the pain is real I feel it the struggle is real I get yes. it <laughs> well hell man um 
one more question from the, and I I saw it come up about uh, the guitar because I, I I would be remiss if I didn't talk about that amazing red white and blue guitar that you have. Hopefully Vic has a picture of the red white and blue guitar as well as the question that came up asking about that middle pickup. Um, could, Vic, can you find that question one more time? He's looking for it, but uh, it was a question about what was the story behind having that middle pickup in that signature guitar. The, the the reason that I had that pickup installed was the humbuckers are just slightly more powerful than the Fender single coil pickups. And in the MC5, I felt like I needed something to make my solos project out above Fred Smith's guitar. <laughs> just one louder, right? One louder. Yeah, I, that, that made me go to 11, I guess. <laughs> So the humbug, well, it, yeah, turns, it turns out that, you know, I, in the, the way the Stratocaster is wired, I can combine just the bridge pickup, the bridge and the middle, just the middle, the neck pickup, or just the neck. Um, so it gives me a lot of different tone to work with. And, that, you know, humbuckers, it's a fatter sound. It's a more substantial tone. With that Strat, do you have a three position uh, pickup selector or do you have a five? Okay. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So you have them in out of phase as well. No, no. Or, they're all in phase. I see what you're doing. You you wired it up so that the, that that second position is basically the bridge and the humbucker together. I get it. Correct. Okay. Well Correct. done on the wiring. Maybe you could do a wiring class in uh, Dale Guitar Doors. I don't think well. so. <laughs> I could never do it. <laughs> but That's a little out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait. Check it out. Um, I'm going to hype up real quick next week's guest that we have on because it will be, and you probably know him as well, uh, from the band Skid Row bassist Rachel Bowen will be our guest on next week's. Uh, put it up there. Thank you very much. That is next week, July 20th in the trenches. And for everyone that's been listening to our audio podcast, thank you for tuning in. But we always encourage you to check out the uh, Ryan Roxy official YouTube channel because that's where you're in on the live chat. and You've been part of it since the beginning live chat and you've been hanging out with brother Wayne Kramer. Thank you for being a trooper this entire podcast. Thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to blab to um, our community. You know, uh, it, this is one of the great advantages of uh the technology that we can talk directly to um, the people that are interested in what we're what we're doing. It's a, it's been an honor. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, um, you've said a lot of inspiring stuff. You've inspired us a lot with the action that you've done. Um, just one last thing: Do you have any words that you live by that inspire you that you could pass on to everyone that's on the uh, chat? Brush after every meal. <laughs> floss. Floss? Floss. Floss. Floss and brush, folks. Yeah. Be, be true to your teeth and they will never be false to you. Wow. Can we put that up somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> that is a fortune cookie waiting to happen. I love it, Wayne. <laughs> well, Brother Wayne, thank you. And we, we must thank Margaret as well for, for being a trooper and putting up, uh, putting together 
all the promo for today's uh, podcast. Again, that link one last time, Vic. We will put it up, jailguitars.org, if you want to check it out. And, of course, uh, Capo is with the... Um, Community Arts Programming and Outreach. That's our youth. It's a youth center. Okay. Perfect. Well, all of this stuff will be coming uh, news on the website as well as hopefully our paths will cross one way or another on the road. Does that sound good? And then no we'll, doubt. Then we'll do it in person. All right. So hang out for one more second. Everybody else there, thank you. We'll see you next week with Rachel Boland. Uh, congrats again for Kanak. Brother Wayne Kramer has been our guest today on In the Trenches. And until next week, enjoy the ride. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello. Moby, give him his guitars back.